God, we thank you for the chance to come together tonight to praise your name. Just as Aaron led us in this beautiful song of praising you and calling all creation to praise your name. God, I pray as we open your word tonight that we'd be able to praise you in like fashion with our whole hearts open, ready to receive what you have for us from your word, God. Would you give me the words to say from your spirit for us tonight? We love you. I pray all these things in your son's name and by your spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Tyler. Well, tonight uh, we're going to go through the end of chapter two. This is the fourth letter now, right? We've had uh, four letters we've seen. We saw the first one was the letter to Ephesus. The second one we saw was the letter to Smyrna. The third one we saw was the letter to, um, oh, what was, the th- what was last week? Well, I missed, yeah, I skipped one on Easter, though, but it was the week before Easter. Uh, The third letter is to the church. Man, I'm just like completely drawing a blank, and that really bugs me. You know how much it bugs me to not know something. Um, I'm going to remember it, and then I'm going to interrupt what I'm talking about, and then I'm going to say it. Uh, No, here, yeah, right, go through the letter alphabet. Anyway, tonight we're talking about Thyatira. Oh, Pergamum, it is Pergamum. Good job, Mo, way to look it up. Um, I should just sit here, I should have just sat here until I remembered it. I'm not going to, but Pergamum is the third one, Thyatira. The week after that will be Sardis. The week after that is Philadelphia, and then we end with uh, Laodicea. So there, I remember the rest of them, since I try and make up for my my faux pas there. Uh, But tonight, this is the fourth letter. We'll have uh, um, Thyatira. And like I've said, each week we've seen kind of a different theme, a different idea that relates really to every church that's ever existed in some fashion at some point in their life. Uh, But each one is unique as it relates to that body at that time. But at various points in a church's life cycle, you know, they may, all of these letters could apply at some point in which you find yourself in need of that message. And tonight is interesting because I feel like this is a message that the church just struggles with generally. And I think it's fair to struggle with it because uh, the reality is we serve a God who is gracious. We serve a God who is merciful and we serve a God who in his infinite kindness took what was the old covenant, a a covenant of works, a covenant of law, a covenant that was based on your ability to be righteous before him. But even in the midst of that, he was gracious, right? He provided the sacrifices and all of the system of atoning for sin, knowing we would fail, knowing we would mess up, but the expectation was righteousness, that we'd live under the law in a way that honored that law and live in accordance with it. Now, like I said, there was provision uh, for, for sinfulness, but the primary goal was to keep the law. And that is not true of the new covenant. Of course, the fundamental change of the new covenant is that no longer can we say as if anyone ever could have, <laughs> right? Paul makes it very clear, no one ever could have said this. But we cannot even presume to say that we are saved by works because Jesus has made it clear that we are saved by grace alone, right? But as always, the Christian church struggles with how to reconcile faith and works. And this is a long-standing problem, right? This is not new. Even the New Testament itself and the days in which it was being written were trying to ascertain how those two things could fit together. How is it possible, right? Paul, you have Paul looking at it and he's speaking of the priority of faith, how important faith is. And of course, then when you get to James, it's like, wait, hold on, (laughs) works matter. (laughs) And in fact, if you don't have any works, your faith is dead, It's it's useless. There's no substance to it. 
And of course, when you get to like the Reformation age, Martin Luther, he, he wants to get rid of James altogether, right? He wants to cut James out of the Bible. Why? Because it seems to cut against faith. Well, one thing that the book of Revelation is consistently talking about, and I think I mentioned it when I mentioned the themes, but I can't remember if I did now. I'd have to go back and listen. But I will mention it now. A consistent theme in Revelation is the concept of deeds. What are your works? What have you done? This letter to Thyatira is about that. So I've titled tonight as we go through Revelation chapter 2, uh, the end of the cha- to the end of the chapter, Revelation 2 verses 18 to 29. It's a long letter, the longest of the letters. I've entitled it, Watch How You Live. Because fundamentally this letter is about the concept of living in accordance with the faith. Living, meaning actually living out the works that show, like James talks about, your faith is alive that it's real, that it has some weight and substance to it, that it's not just something you profess. And so tonight we will talk about this concept of works. Here's what Jesus has to say, how he opens the letter to Thyatira. Revelation 2, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, And his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Now, if you remember, all of this, minus the Son of God reference, is coming from Revelation 1. Now, we've seen this each week. I've gone back to Revelation 1 so you can see that he's pulling from the vision. John had that vision of the Son of Man in in Revelation 1, of what this Son of Man, this glorified Son of Man looks like. And so for each letter... Jesus introduces himself from a portion of that vision. And now to the church at Thyatira, he says, I'm the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and my feet are like burnished bronze, right? This is what he looks like. So here it is in Revelation 1. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. When it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So that's where he's pulling this. You can hear the same language. The one piece that is unique that's not from the vision is this title, Son of God. Now, with all of this imagery and the words, the Son of God, it actually leads us to an Old Testament reference. And it relates to this fire imagery. You can see the fire imagery is really significant. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze, meaning they've, they've been heated. They've been purified. They've been, they've been put in a furnace, right? It even said they've been made to glow like in a furnace. What's that have to do with? Well, You've seen that we've gone to Daniel many times already in this book, and this again is going to take us to the book of Daniel. Right now, it's going to take us to the book of Daniel in chapter 3 specifically, right? Daniel chapter 3 is a, a story that we're probably familiar with. It's the story of these three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the story. And the story goes like this. I'll tell you the recap before we get to what talks about uh, this reference. Remember, these three came with Daniel, and they were brought to be nobles in, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's court, right? So they were brought into the land of Babylon. They were exiles from, from Israel, from Judah specifically, and they were brought into the, the royal court. They go through all that time with Daniel, and yet Daniel's kind of set apart, and these three friends are kind of still together, but Daniel's kind of set apart as kind of the, the he treated like the greatest of them. But these three are subject to the law that states you must bow down to this great image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has created. And so he has this massive statue, and most people assume it was made in Nebuchadnezzar's likeness. Maybe it could have been an an idol. It could have been a, a picture of Bel or one of the gods of Babylon. We don't exactly know. 
But whatever the case, there's this massive image. And it's supposed to be that everyone, they go out and they're going to play a song and everyone everywhere is going to bow down to this image and worship it, right? And of course, these three, they're faithful Israelites. And so as faithful Israelites, what do they do? Do they conform? Do they compromise? No. They refuse. And so it's told Nebuchadnezzar, hey, these three guys are not bowing down. They're not giving honor to your image. What are we going to do about that? And Nebuchadnezzar, it says, he kind of doesn't know what to do with it at first. He kind of thinks, well, that's probably not true. These guys have been good guys, have been good for me. You know, they've, they've helped me out. They've been really faithful, right? They're good people. They're not lying and cheating and all that. They're great. So he gives them another chance. But he wants them to do it before him. And so he says, hey, maybe this is all just a misunderstanding. Go ahead and bow down again. And you can just do it here in front of me. And so they play the lyre and the trumpet and all these pieces. And of course, they still don't bow down, even in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, this makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. He realizes that this is some kind of obstinacy in them, that they refuse to worship what he's told them to worship. This is complete insubordination. And so what's he going to do? Well, he's furious and they say, listen, whatever you do, we're not going to bow down to your idols. It doesn't matter. We worship the God of Israel. And he tells them he's going to burn them in a furnace. He's going to kill them by throwing them into a hot furnace, which sounds pretty awful. And they say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you can try and do that. That's fine. But listen, we know that our God is God of the universe and he will protect us. He's going to protect us from what you're going to do to us. But then they say this, it's awesome. They say, but our faith isn't contingent on his protection. We're not going to just believe only if he protects us. But even if he doesn't, even if he lets us succumb to the flames, we will still not bow down and worship your God because we know that even if we die, the God of Israel is the only true God. And this just enrages Nebuchadnezzar. He says, listen, these guys need to, they need to pay. Let's incinerate them. Turn the furnace seven times hotter than normal. And when you're wondering how hot this is, it says in the text that the people who brought them in to throw them into the furnace died from the heat. The act of taking them to throw them in the furnace got close enough that they, killed, they were killed by it. That's how hot this furnace is burning. So now we get here when Nebuchadnezzar sees them in this furnace. Daniel 3, this is verse 13. Oh, excuse me. We went back here. Uh, Daniel 3, verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. They're not dying. He's wondering what's going on. He said to his high official, he said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Now you can see all this imagery relates to this idea of the one who is the Son of God. Like a Son of the God in the text in Daniel, all the fire imagery it looks like it's alluding to this vision, alluding to Jesus as the one amongst the fire. Now, what imagery is fire used consistently for in the scriptures? Well, there's two. One is destruction, but this is to the church. So I assume the imagery is not of destruction, though the threat of destruction could be there. The other way that fire is used consistently in the scripture is the idea of purity. It's a purifying reality. 
right? And, and even the, the idea of bronze, it's burnished bronze. That idea of metal being purified, of the dross coming up and, and, and scooping that out, and that the metal becomes pure. That's an image of what God is doing to the church, of what the Holy Spirit is doing to the church. It's refining them. It is purifying them. It's sanctifying is the word we use uh, in theology, right? So when we look at this, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, this is about Jesus, the one who wants to make us righteous. The one who wants our deeds to be pure. The eyes like a flame of fire, what what does that mean? He sees through you. He sees to the heart of men. He knows your deeds. And in fact, he opens that letter right after this, doesn't he? I know your deeds. His feet like burnished bronze. He is the pure one, isn't he? He is the one perfectly pure, refined and perfect. Here we go. Revelation 2, verse 19. I know your deeds. And your love and faith and service and perseverance. And I know that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The things that you've done, church, at Thyatira, your deeds have have only grown in their magnificence. You've truly done great things. I know you've served me, I know you've persevered. Good job. This is his commendation. Good work, I know what you do. And there's beauty in it. I've seen your deeds, and they're even better now than they used to be. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now again, this language should appear very familiar to you from two weeks ago when we went through the letter to the church at Pergamum. I remembered this time. Right? The letter to the church at Pergamum. Because this is the exact thing that it was said the Balaam group was convincing them to do. Sexual immorality, it's not just generic acts of immorality, that's porneia. Sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's the exact same worry. Internally, internally they are not pure because they have accepted people into it who are teaching false things. And this letter at Thyatira really is it's kind of more in depth in terms of explaining the reality of what they're, just the darkness of what they're doing. It's gonna go on in the letter and you'll see. But the, the problem is similar. <laughs> and what it is is that they are becoming like the culture that surrounds them. They are doing the same things that their culture does. They are not remaining separate. And just like we talked about church at Pergamum, where it was, it was kind of different in the sense that we had a different thematic idea. Here, it's very much focused on the deeds of what you do. Right? What, what you do matters. So we know, Thyatira, your, your deeds have been great, and yet you're letting this person in who is teaching you to do the all, all, just the utmost heinous things of your culture. Things that are truly an affront to God. How can you tolerate that? Now this is very specific, this Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Probably this means that there was actually some woman at at the church at Thyatira who was teaching false doctrine. It seems generally pretty specific. Now, the Jezebel reference doesn't mean her name was actually Jezebel. That's a reference to the Old Testament, of course, because Jezebel was a very important uh, foreign woman to the land of Israel in the Old Testament. 
right? If you don't know the story, this is alluding to these same things. Just like the Balaam story alluded to these things, acts of sexual immorality and eating things, sacrifice to idols, worshiping other gods. This is true of Jezebel as well. This is from 1 Kings 16 that introduces us to her. But what you need to know about Jezebel, she was married to King Ahab. And when Ahab came into to power, uh, his father was Omri. And when he came into power, uh, he married a foreign wife. He married a woman from another nation. And in the Old Testament, that is almost always a sign of bad things to come. And it's not that there's just some xenophobia or something in the Old Testament where they don't like foreigners, right? It always came with a, with a stipulation. Why was it bad to marry a foreign woman? Because they were going to bring their gods. And it happened every time. Every time they intermixed with other people's, what ended up happening is that they would start worshiping the gods of other people. And the Lord viewed that akin to what? Adultery. It was his people cheating on him. And so Jezebel is from the, the, the kingdom, I guess, of Sidon. She's a Sidonian. And she's a Sidonian princess. She's the daughter of the king of Sidon. So here it is in 1 Kings 16. Uh, Ahab, if you remember, probably the best frame of reference for you, he's the king that has all the confrontations with Elijah, right? So the prophets of Baal, when you hear that great story on Mount Carmel and they have the big confrontation, that's Ahab. And his wife is Jezebel. Here we go, 1 Kings 16. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sons of Jer- sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went to serve Baal and worshiped him. This is a man, right? It's, he's, he's already done evil, and we're talking about deeds of evil. He did evil. He had evil deeds. And what's, as if that was, the Lord is saying here in 1 Kings 16, as if that was a trivial enough thing to do great evil, to just live an evil, unrighteous life, he actually instituted, as an institution, Baal worship in Israel. This is not just, you know, some random person going and making a totem pole that they can worship, an Asherah pole that they can worship, right? This is the king of Israel. This is the northern kingdom, Israel. The king instituting Baal worship in Israel. That's an institution, it says that the Asherah were put up on every high hill and there were, there were worship spots, places you would go to worship Baal, that you would go there and worship him. This is the kingdom that belongs to Yahweh, the God of Israel, now having an instituted pagan worship enforced by the king and his new queen. Okay, so this is systemic it's not a one-off. This is not one random person doing it. It's, it's, it's a system that's been created. And Jezebel is the one who incited Ahab to do it. To worship her gods. So again, it, and if you know anything about Baal, if you know anything about um, that, you know, the, the worship of Baal, he was a fertility god, Right? That's, that's the reality of the worship of him. It entailed sexual immorality. Sex was a part of their cultic ritual. So this is not just like, okay, these two unrelated things. The worship of foreign gods, especially as it related to Baal, was intimately tied with sexual sin. Fornication, temple prostitutes, all of that was a, a normal part of their religious ritual. Okay? Okay. And what they're saying is this woman who's teaching in Thyatira, she's just like Jezebel. She is telling my people to do worship of other gods 
in the midst of my kingdom. This is not a pagan Gentile saying this. This is a redeemed Christian. And now, to be fair, we don't know whether they were actually a Christian. Probably not, right? They're worshiping other gods. But this is someone who claims to be in the church telling them to worship other gods. That's okay. That it's okay to commit acts of sexual immorality. Listen to what he says about her. I have given her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. He says, I've, I've shown her grace. I have shown her grace. But behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of what? Her deeds. This letter is about what you do. Those who have fallen under her spell, those who are part of this group, who have submitted to this Jezebel's teaching, they still have a chance to repent of her deeds. But if they don't, their end will be her end. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and does what? I give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now that's a heavy statement. This is not an Old Testament statement. This is a New Testament statement. Deeds matter. What you do counts. And whatever way you piece together faith and works, you've got to piece them together because they do not exist separately from each other. The Old Testament is a complete story telling us that works alone cannot save. All of the saints of the Old Testament had New Testament faith to be saved. The New Testament makes that clear. Faith has always been the factor. And in fact, before the law was even instituted, Abraham had faith. That was the path to God. And yet the New Testament is equally insistent that if you do not have works, your faith is worthless. You have shown the value of your faith by how you live. If you claim to have faith, this is all John, by the way, Revelation, Gospel of John, the letters of John, right? What does John say in 1 John? If you claim to be a Christian and you say, I hate my brother, you prove that you walk in darkness. You've proven if the actual reality of your heart is hate for your brother, even if you claim to be of the light, you walk in darkness. That's John. Here he's saying, your works can expose the reality of your faith. They can expose who you really are, whether you like that or not. And you may tell everyone, and you may even show everyone, this is, I'm a Christian, and I, I have the right faith, and I believe the right things, but guess what? Even if everyone else believes it, this is the one who searches hearts and minds. This is the one with eyes like a flame of fire, who can see to your core. And I will give to each of you according to your deeds. Like I said, however you bring together faith and works in your system, they've got to be brought together. They work together. So, I am he who searches the hearts and minds and I will give to each according to their deeds. This is actually a reference to Jeremiah 17. This is a quote. 
out of Jeremiah 17. Listen to Jeremiah 17. I read a little, a bigger section of Jeremiah 17 because I think it's, it's valuable to see the context. Right? Listen to this, verse five. Thus says the Lord. Think about how this influences the reading of Revelation. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. What is the whole point of Revelation? It's to convince people to not compromise with the world. Not be like them. Be different. Don't do the things that they do. That's a priority for John in the book of Revelation. Don't do what they do. And so he quotes Jeremiah 17 saying, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. And turns away from the Lord. If you trust the world, you've turned away from the Lord. I, I don't mean trust in the sense that you, you, know, you don't have good relationships or something like that, or you're out to, you know, to, to really tell people off or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, that your heart trusts in it, that your heart believes in it, that your heart has the same goal that the world has. Listen, this is what the man who trusts in mankind will be like. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The dry, parched, dying bush of the unrighteous and like a tree planted by a stream of water are the righteous. That's Psalm 1. It goes on. Here's the quote that John uses. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah says the human heart is just it is sick. There's something wrong with it. Who could possibly fathom the depths of darkness of the human heart? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That's what John's quoting. Jeremiah 17.10. God knows. God knows who we are. He knows what we've done. And, and if you think you can know a person by looking at what they've done, which to be honest is a pretty accurate judge of a person, let's be fair, just generally. I'm not saying always, but generally. If you look at how a person lives, you can get a pretty accurate assessment of who they are, usually. If it is obvious to us what type of person a person is based on how they live, what do you think God sees? Who sees everything that person does? What do you think his judgment, his perception? Let's ignore omniscience for a second, that he already knows the contents of the human heart. Just observing, if he just had the power of, of perfect observation, how much could he know about us? How much could he understand who we are? Because he sees everything we do. Even if he couldn't pierce to the center of us, know exactly what motivates us, what, what drive we have, what motivations, what 
everything that makes us who we are. Even if he couldn't, he could just see what we did. He said, I'm going to pay you for the way you've lived. But I say to you, this is back to Revelation 2, verse 20, verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, this means those who are not either Jezebel or those who have followed her. The rest of you who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Now, we don't know exactly what is going on with this deep things of Satan, as they call them reference. But what most people think, most scholars think, is that this deep things of Satan is actually, it's actually being talked about positively, not negatively. This is not just John saying, hey, those things we just talked about, those are the deep things of Satan. They're evil. Don't do them. But actually, that Jezebel and her followers were talking about sexual immorality and food sacrifice to, to, uh, to idols and eating them and really worshiping other gods, that that was a way to know the deep things of Satan so that you would be better prepared, right? Deceit doesn't work unless it has some kind of like something to hold on to that maybe you could find, oh yeah, that makes sense. That, there's logic there. And the logic goes, listen, if we know those things, how much better prepared are we to fight against them? If we participate, then can't we better speak to the culture about how they should not do that? I mean, how can we say eating food sacrificed to idols is bad if we don't know that we've done it and we can say, well, look at this. This is bad and this is bad because we've experienced it. (laughs) How many people do you know that talk like that today? This is not something that's just gone away. (laughs) Paul also addresses this reality, doesn't he? In Romans, when he says, Should we go on sinning that grace might increase? And of course, why is Paul asking that question? Because there are people teaching that. If God offers us grace, no matter what we do, hey, let's do the worst things imaginable because then grace will come on to us even more. You know, if we only like lied once, we're just gonna get a little bit of grace because we just lied. But if we went and murdered a bunch of people, think how much grace it requires from God to forgive us of that. Wow, so much grace upon me. What's Paul's response? Absolutely not. Of course we shouldn't. He's redeemed us so that we wouldn't have to be depraved anymore. The point of redemption was so that we wouldn't be slaves to sin any longer. Those who want to do those things, those who seek out those things, prove that they're still in bondage. In fact, that's why we have this whole concept, theological concept of regeneration, that the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. Why is that important? Because without it, our hearts are the same heart that Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 17. Desperately sick. Ununderstandable. Regeneration, the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart. What's that about? It's about the fact that our desires don't have to be evil anymore. It doesn't mean we never sin. What it means is that our deepest desires are for good things now. At the core of who we are, at the, if you could go to the very center of the human heart, a regenerate human heart, they want to do good. They've really become holy. That is the truth of being a Christian, that the Holy Spirit has so indwelt us that at the core, at the most basic, at the most fundamental reality of who you are, you actually are holy. Holy. 
And that the walking out of that will progress as time goes on. Sure, it's a broken path. We all know that. It's not a straight upward trajectory. It's a broken path. Sometimes, you're not gonna say, every moment I live, I'm farther along the path of sanctification. I'm better than I was the moment before. No. But the Christian, if you look at the the average, if you look at the median, you're heading towards Christ-likeness. You're not heading towards depravity. That's fundamental. Because the Holy Spirit has made your heart actually desire what God desires. For the non-Christian, that's not to say they can never do any good. It's not to say they can't do good things. But at the core of who they are, that fundamental center of the human heart, their desires are not God's desires. Their desires are their own. What they, what they seek, what they want, is for their own selfish end. It's for Satan's ends. It is not for the things of God. That doesn't mean they can't be nice to their neighbor. That doesn't mean they can't give a homeless person some money. It means that they are not saved. They have not been changed at the core of who they are. And what Jesus is saying in this letter is, I know who you are. And I can see to the core of you. And those who are like Jezebel and her children are not mine. They long to know the deep things of Satan. And they think, hey, now we can be better Christians because we've had grace abound on us. We can be better Christians because now we know the deep things of Satan so we can fight against them. No, all you've shown is that you love the deep things of Satan because you desire them. And you're unwilling to, to risk or sacrifice anything to stand against them. They've proven who they are by what they do. But for those who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, how you live, hold it fast till I come. I gotta be honest, this is a very hard letter to read because I think about that reality. How hard would it be to live in a church like that? Where we have a group that's openly doing satanic things. Jesus says, yeah, I'm coming to judge them, but for now, just hold on to what you have. Don't be like that group. Don't think like them. Don't operate like them. If you can help them repent, help them repent of Jezebel's deeds, but primarily, just hold on to what you have. Do what you've been doing. Remember what he said earlier. For those who are not of Jezebel and her children, I know your deeds of late have been greater than they even were at first. I've seen your growth. To the one who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, the one who does what Christ does. To him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an interesting psalm. It's it's particularly significant for the New Testament because it's a messianic psalm. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. And it's important. I I actually am going to read the psalm. It's a short psalm. It's not like I'm, you know, reading one of the alphabetic ones or something. Psalm 119. So that's good. But uh, it's a short psalm. Psalm 2. 
I'm gonna read you the whole psalm because it's interesting in light of what this vision is. And it's interesting in light of the Son of Man vision we saw. Key to the New Testament, even as far along as Revelation, is reminding us over and over that Jesus, yes, okay, if you just look at it from an earthly way, he died. And that's what happened, and he died, and, and he, you know, the Jews looked at it, he's a false messiah, he died. He didn't engage any kingdom, he didn't make anything happen, he just came and died. What's so great about that? He's just like every other false leader we've had. One of the things that was key for the New Testament writers was to, to how to reconcile that and really remember that Jesus is king. He already is king. And of course, John talks about that a lot in the Gospel of John, that him being put on the cross, what looks like to the world, just open shame and destruction of Jesus is actually him being enthroned. And all the mockery that they did putting a purple robe like royalty on his shoulders and a crown of thorns on his head, that was a real mantle and a real crown. And our king was being inaugurated in that event. He was being coronated. And when everyone else saw it and they looked at it and they saw, look at this just despised, pitiful man. The Christian looks at that and they see a king being crowned, receiving his kingdom. And the church fought. They fought even in their writings to remind themselves, Jesus, even when our lives are hard, even when there's suffering and pain, we know, we know that God is at work and we know that Jesus is king. We know that Jesus is still on the throne and that actually our suffering and our pain that looks so like, man, look at these Christians, clearly their God's not in control because look at how they're treated. Look at, look at the way they're being killed. Look at the way they're being beheaded. Look at, you know, all these sufferings that we remind ourselves, no, that's how our king was treated. The reason we're treated like that is because we're part of his kingdom. And so they were constantly reminding themselves. And when they looked to the Old Testament, they would look for things that reminded them of Messiah, of course, those were prophecies, but they were interpreting them in the light of Jesus. Psalm 2 is interesting <clears throat> in one sense as it relates to Revelation because it has to do with judgment. And again, in the New Testament, we are so focused on the salvific aspect and, and, and what we've done for 2,000 years, we forget that Jesus Christ is the judge. That's what Psalm 2 is about. I'm gonna read you Psalm two. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. Okay, here's the setup of Psalm two. All the nations of the earth are fighting against Yahweh. They're trying to devise a scheme. How can, we, how can we defeat God? How can we how can we take power away from him? How can we deny his authority? How can we rebel against him? And it says the peoples are devising a vain thing. That means an empty thing. It's pointless. Who could do this? And yet they're still trying to do their vain thing, their empty thing. They're standing up against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
And here's what they say. Let's tear their fetters apart, their chains. Let's cast them off. Cast away their cords from us. Let's no longer be under their authority. Let's remove the yoke from our backs. We can cast off this God and cast off his sovereignty and we can be our own people. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then the Lord will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, This is the psalmist speaking. But of course, when we read this, who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. The anointed one they're standing against is speaking. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, the Lord, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten. This is still the Lord speaking to the anointed. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Everything that exists, I will give you, my anointed one. I will give you. The nations and the ends of the earth will be yours. See, Psalm 2 is a kingship psalm. Who's going to be king? Will the nations and all their kings that rule them, are they going to end in power? Or will this anointed one who's been installed upon Zion, is, is he going to be the ruler? And of course, Christians read this and they're like, this is Jesus. Here we go. Here's the quote. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Who's doing the breaking and shattering? Jesus is. He himself is shattering and breaking the nations. Their rebelliousness will be dealt with by Christ. They will pay for what they've done, for the rebelliousness of their hearts. Now here he gives them a chance to repent. Now therefore, O kings, after hearing what the Lord of all the universe said to the anointed, what should your response be, kings? Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. That's rulers of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, right? Pay tribute to the son, lest he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him, the anointed. Now, Psalm 2 Psalm 2 reads like Revelation. You better shape up. You better do what I've called you to do. You better pay homage to the Son, or else his wrath may be kindled, and you might perish from it. His authority cannot be questioned. And if it is, like the kings of the earth plan to do, they will pay for what they've done. Now, having read Psalm 2, think about what Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira. The one who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end He's going to fulfill the same role that I do. 
I will give authority over the nations. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall break, uh, excuse me, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. He's saying, you're going to have my authority. He's promise, promising them this, this reality of authority and, and sovereignty and kingship. Now, is that subservient to God? Of course it is, obviously. But he is promising those who overcome the same authority that I received from my father. The authority to do what's right. To rule in a way that is, is righteous. Just like him. That's what you will receive. You will receive kingship and authority if you overcome, if you keep his deeds until the end. And I will give him the morning star, the light, the purity, bright, shining like the sun. You're gonna be like Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is an important lesson because what we do matters. It's easy to forget that. It's easy when the fundamental core of our faith is that we've been saved by grace. It's easy to forget that what we do does matter, that God actually cares. It's cer- certainly simpler to just go about and live your life and trust that God's got your back, which he does. I really believe that. But all too often we treat deeds or works or how we live our life with way too much flippancy. And God is an add-on at the end. I, I, you know, a lot of Christians live in that way in which I just pretty much do whatever I want and then expect God to baptize it after the fact. We don't try to hear from him. We don't listen to his voice. We don't ask him, even when it comes to like gray areas where, okay, maybe it's not sin. Maybe it is for some, maybe it's not for others. Even then we're just like, well, I just trust that I'm gonna make the right choice. We don't take time to sit down and like, God, reveal to me what you think about this for my life. It's a much harder process. It's much, much easier and much more straightforward to just live your life and do what you're gonna do. But I will tell you, righteousness does not come by accident. You don't fall into doing the right thing. That is the work. The work is making yourself a person who is righteous. Now, who does the majority of the work? Of course it's God. The Spirit is already done the most important thing. If you're a Christian, he's regenerated you. He gave you that core that wants to be like God that wants to do what God wants. But over and over and over, the New Testament tells us, put off the old man, put on the new man. Take off the filthy garments and put on new pure white robes. That's about deeds. (laughs) That's about purity, that's about righteousness. Over and over again, it says, work out your salvation. That's a command to you. Work out your salvation. It says, here's the will of God for you to be sanctified, to be righteous. That's the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? The Bible says it. Be righteous. Now, are there more questions to be answered about what God wants you to do with your life? Sure. 
But we know every Christian, every person who, who subscribes to the scriptures, it says explicitly, here's God's will for you. Be righteous. Be sanctified. We have got to put the work in. We can't expect that God just magically does it. It is a process. It is a work. I do believe there are times in which God gives us special grace and we have a, 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 just a leap in righteousness. Just a, like, just, that's a grace. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, you're just a better person than when you, I believe that happens. You know, you hear about it. You hear about people having addictions and just being cured of them like that. I mean, that is a grace. And I completely believe God does that for people in many ways and various times and probably over and over again throughout our lives. That's that being filled with the Spirit, that He's constantly at work. But that is not the norm. That is not just the norm for every Christian. That is just all of a sudden you wake up and then you're perfect. That is not standard. What's standard is to have to fight it out over and over and over and over again. And the little things that seem inconsequential and unimportant and that they don't matter are actually the things that form the character for when a truly massive thing comes up. You don't get to a, a make or break moment and just happen to make the right decision at that time. It's a trail of who you've chosen to be at each point along the path, leading to these moments that can really define you. But the thing that we know God has our back in, the thing that we can really rely on, is not to just know the deep things of Satan, to just sin so that grace could increase, and then just expect God's gonna have grace for us. No, the way God's got our back is we try our best to be righteous. And when we fail, we know there's always a safety net. There's always redemption. There's always grace. And that every day, I tell this to my family all the time when we're having bad days, every day can be redeemed because the power of Jesus at work, the power of his spirit is always available. A day can always be redeemed. A life can always be redeemed. There's no one too far gone. But we should not rely on that like it's the first choice we should recognize that it's what God has offered to us when we need it. Our first choice should always be to learn to live like Jesus, to aspire to be like him. And because of the Holy Spirit, we have that ability to truly desire what God desires and to try our best to actually be like him. And guess what? You can actually succeed at it. And what I've found from talking to most Christians, and this is tragic in my opinion, so tragic. Everyone believes they can fail. Most Christians don't believe they can succeed at being righteous. And that is a tragedy. Because over and over and over again, the New Testament compels us. Become who you are. You're already holy. Be that person. It's why Paul, no matter who he's talking to, if he's talking to the jacked up people at Corinth are doing all kinds of crazy stuff or if he's talking to the Galatians who are literally forsaking the gospel and he's trying to prevent them from doing it he always addresses them the same way saints 
You know what saints means? He calls them hagias. Saints is the word we've taken to replace that in English. It literally just means holy. When you see in your Bible, it's translated to the saints at so-and-so. It literally in the Greek says to the holy at Ephesus. Because Paul knows that's who you are. But this letter to Thyatira reminds us it matters how you live. You gotta live out the holiness that you've already received. God's got your back. He'll always give grace. If you ask for it, he will be there. But he is the one who searches hearts and knows minds. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And he knows what you do. So be careful. Be warned. Live more like him. Tyler, you come up and pray for us.